0: Please turn this evening back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I want to read two verses. The first is verse 20. And then the final verse of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And then verse 29. Lo, this only have I found That God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. We've worked through the questions and answers on the Ten Commandments following the outline of our shorter catechism, and these have shown to us our duty towards God. What is the duty that God requires of man? It is obedience to his revealed will, as it is particularly manifested to us in the moral law. And so these 10 commandments are like 10 great summary moral principles, not the only laws that God has given, but summary statements that deal with categories of law uh, or, or sin, like sexual sin, sexual obedience, and so forth. We've seen that. And then underneath those 10 pillars, there are two foundational principles. Well, really one foundational principle divided into two, and that, of course, is love. Love towards God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, and love to our neighbor as ourselves. And as we've worked through the Ten Commandments, we've learned something about the law in its breadth and its depth and we've endeavored to set before you the spirituality of that law so that we understand with the Apostle the law is spiritual but I am carnal, sold under sin. And coming to a proper understanding of the Ten Commandments, a very obvious question should arise in our minds and the Catechism asks it for us. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Very obvious question. Before we answer it, however, I want you to to note that this really takes us to the very heart of the distinction between true religion and false religion, and likewise between true Christianity and false forms of Christianity. Because every false religion to some extent allows that man has the power to obey and to please God so as to earn either a part or the whole of his salvation. So it's an important question. It's asking us, do we have the ability to do this? Do we have the power to commit the, to, to keep the commandments of God? Can we live up? To the standards that God has set, can we please him? And the answer is, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, in word, and in deed. The catechism answer, simply put, is no a resounding no, an absolute no. No man is able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. But of course, that agrees with the conclusion of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There is no one who is righteous, There is no one who does good perfectly and who does not sin or whose works are not mixed with sin or tainted by sin. It is impossible, says Solomon, to find such an one among the sons of fallen Adam. And so then with God's help this evening, we want to consider this important question, this doctrine, can man perfectly keep the law? Well, first of all, consider that Adam before the fall was able to keep the law perfectly. We have to start there. Adam before the law was able to, before the fall was able to keep the law perfectly. And so if you look at the catechism answer, you will see that it has a number of very important qualifications in it. And one is that it says no mere man or no ordinary man, and we will see that this excludes one very glorious and extraordinary example, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But then there's another qualification, no mere man since the fall. So that includes another man. That tells us that Adam, in his pre-fallen condition, was able to keep the law of God and to render obedience to his creator. What then does it mean to perfectly keep the law? This is important because the way people imagine that they keep the law of God is to remove the 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 standard that God uh, sets for obedience. And that is perfect obedience which means we are to obey the whole of the law in all of its parts from our heart in our life continually without any breach or falling short of its standard. You are to love God. You are to obey him in inclination and in motive, in thought and in affection and in all of your actions continually and perpetually
1: can any do it? Has anyone ever
0: been able to do it? And we're saying, yes, Adam was able to do it. Because in the beginning, he was created by God in the image of God. And we've seen this in the catechism, how that God created our first parents in original righteousness. And Solomon recognizes this as well in chapter 7, verse 29. Lo, this only have I found that God hath made man upright. There wasn't a problem with creation. God, in the beginning, made man upright. He was morally straight. He was righteous. Everything about him was in line with the righteousness of God. The Catechism divides that up and shows us how that includes our creation in knowledge and in righteousness and in true holiness. So that Adam in the beginning had holy motives in his heart. He had a holy will within him that was inclined unto God. He had a holy mind. And with it all, he had the power given to him by God to perform all of the obedience that the law of God required. What a glorious creation.
1: That the whole of Adam's life before the fall was in perfect tune with the law of God. And it played out in his life in a perfect harmony of righteousness. The law of God
0: was his inward delight. When Adam heard the voice of the Lord coming before sin entered into the world, then in answer to the command of God, he had an instinctive, sweet and instant compliance with everything that the Lord required of him. He loved his father perfectly as a man. He delighted to do the will of his father at all times. In this sense, Adam and we in Adam were like the elect angels. We were created in holiness, but unlike the elect angels, we were not confirmed unchangeably in that state of holiness. God created Adam in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, yet his will was subject to change. And without going into the details of the mystery of our fall, by the exercise of the freedom of his will, by turning the inclination of that will upon its head, he sinned against God and he fell from the estate wherein he was created, which has left all men who descend from Adam condemned in sin, corrupted in the entirety of human nature so that when he fell, we fell in him.
1: But prior to that, Adam could answer the
0: question, yes, this is exactly what I was created to do. This is what I was equipped to do as a man created in the image of
1: God. So the first thing is Adam before the fall
0: was able to keep the law perfectly. The second is that Christ is the one man since the fall who was able to keep the law perfectly. Again, the catechism is precise. Since the fall, no mere man is able to keep the law of God perfectly. But that's a reference to what we know all men who descend by ordinary generation, by, by natural birth from Adam. But you also know, children, don't you, that there's one man, Jesus Christ, who is not born by ordinary generation from Adam. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we might say,
1: was truly man, But at the same
0: time, we have to say he was not merely man. He was truly man. He had a true human nature, a body, a reasonable soul. But he was not merely man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the incarnate word who was with God from the beginning and was God. So in the mystery of the incarnation, the eternal son of the father takes into union with his divine nature, a true human nature, in the miracle of the virgin conception. His human nature is conceived supernaturally from the substance of the virgin Mary, but the holy child in the womb is then preserved from all inherited corruption from the line of Adam.
1: So he breaks the line of sinful men. Truly man, but not merely man.
0: Our Lord Jesus Christ, like Adam when he was created, was able to keep the law of God. And so he continues in a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He obeys from the heart, in affection, in motive, in action. All of his thoughts are after God. He says within his soul, to do thy will, I take delight for thou, my God, that thou art thou. Yea, that most holy law of thine, I have within my heart.
1: He doesn't just say that once. That's the
0: whole of the life. The perpetual obedience of the Son of God in our flesh. His thoughts are always after God. His words are always righteous. His deeds are always holy. His affections are always holy. And so that we read, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he pleased the Father in all things. He perfectly loves God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength and all of his mind, and he perfectly loves his neighbor as himself. Like Adam, when he was created, our Lord Jesus Christ was able to keep the law of God. But unlike Adam when he was created, Jesus, humanity, was confirmed in holiness. It was confirmed in holiness. So all those things that we have said about Christ are true, but they were also true of Adam prior to his fall. But here's the difference. Not only is he God and man in two distinct natures and one person, yet our Lord Jesus Christ not only fulfilled all righteousness and perfectly resisted temptation so that he did not sin. He could
1: not sin. It was utterly impossible
0: for Jesus to sin. Now, there are Latin phrases that we've mentioned before that describe these differences. I'll put them into English. When we look at Adam, we can say of Adam, he was able not to sin. When we look at Christ, we say he was not able to sin. And there's a very important difference there. Adam was able not to sin. Jesus was
1: not able to sin and therefore he
0: did not sin. So he's like Adam in that he's able to keep the law. He's unlike Adam in that his humanity is confirmed in holiness. Furthermore, the perfect obedience of Christ in the flesh is the obedience of the person of the Son of God in our flesh. It is the God-man who is obeying the law. And his divine nature being united to his human nature His obedience to the Father has all of the infinite merit of deity, which is essential for our salvation. So here's Jesus, the Son of God. He's able to please God for himself. He's humbled himself to be found in fashion as a man. And he will return to heaven, if we might say that, though the the eternal son uh, was incarnated without being incarcerated in our humanity. He didn't leave heaven the way people romantically talk about it. But his human nature had to go to heaven. And so he performs all of This obedience as the God man and is able to return to heaven as the God man on the ground of his own perfect obedience. And so you read in in, in Psalm 24, Ye gates lift up your heads on high, ye doors that last for be lifted up. What's the issue here? The gates, they're astounded. Who's coming up this hill of God? The only person who can come up this hill is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He has not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Who is this man? He's the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. It is Emmanuel ascending the holy hill of God on the ground of his own perfect obedience and the gates of heaven have to open and rejoice
1: to receive him. But he
0: lived not only for himself. He offers this life of perfect obedience to the law, unto the Father, so that we who cannot keep the law can be saved.
1: So he ascends that holy hill not just
0: for himself, but when the gates of heaven open to the eternal Son, our Savior, He opens them so that he might bring many sons to glory. That we might ascend the holy hill of God
1: in him. In this way, where Adam
0: failed, Christ succeeds. Everything that we lost in Adam is restored to us in Christ. Indeed, we gain even more than we lost if we believe in him. This is the gospel, friends. Turn to Romans chapter 5, and you'll see how Paul elaborates this point. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, where there are two men, and we are related to the one, Adam, by nature, and we must be related to the other, Jesus, by grace, if we are to be saved, Romans chapter five, verse seventeen, for by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came. Upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made
1: righteous. So Adam
0: before the fall was able to keep the law of God perfectly. Christ is the one man since the fall. Who was able to keep the law of God perfectly. And that brings us to our third point. All other men since the fall cannot keep the law of God perfectly. No mere man since the fall has been able to perfectly keep the commandments of God, but doth
1: daily break these commandments in thought and in word and in deed. Two exceptions, Adam
0: pre-fall and the incarnate Christ. My friends, you do not need me to tell you this evening that you are neither of those men. You are neither of those men.
1: Therefore, you cannot keep the law perfectly.
0: Now, this applies differently to those who are Christians and born again of the Spirit and those who are not Christians. But yet, the basic truth still holds for both that no mere man can render perfect obedience unto the law of God. So, I want to consider with you first of all here the non Christian. The non Christian, the unregenerate man. He cannot keep the law of God at all. You see, our fall in Adam absolutely decimated the spirituality and morality of man. So that a man born into this world is now born dead in trespasses and in sins. The guilt of Adam's first transgression is imputed to him. The corruption of the whole nature is inherited from him. So that we have exchanged that which we were created with, original righteousness, with our holy mind and our our perfect will and our, our, our affections which were in tune and after God. We've exchanged original righteousness for original
1: sin. And it's left us
0: totally depraved in our thoughts and in our desires and in our deeds. Think about what Paul says of man in sin. So many places. He tells us this, that those who are in the flesh, and flesh there is not just talking about the material body. It's talking about the fallen state. Yes, we're in the material body. But those who are in the flesh, the state of
1: the flesh, they cannot please God.
0: Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Furthermore, in the previous verse, he says, we have a carnal mind, a fleshly mind, and that mind is enmity against God. We're at war with God.
1: It is not subject to the
0: law of God, but neither indeed can it be. And so you go to man and sin, he is a carnal mind. You look at his life and you say, "Well, well, that's a man who is not subject to the law of God. Paul goes further than that. He says, it is impossible for natural man ever to be subject to the law of God. Can't be
1: done. All men are born under sin.
0: There is none righteous. There is none that understandeth. There is none who by his own inclination will ever seek after God. So here's the unregenerate man, and he's dead. And because he is dead, he does not even have a true sense of the holiness of God. Now, the fall did not make him non-human. And he still has the component parts of human nature, so he's got a conscience. And the conscience still works, although it doesn't
1: work very well. And at times, the natural man will
0: be impressed upon his conscience, and he'll have pricks of conviction when he hears about sin. But even still, even when that is happening, he has no truly developed sense or appreciation for the holiness of God. He may be moved to religious things. Sometimes people offer this as an argument for the existence of God. Go to any place in the world and you'll discover man's religious. Go out to a field of cows. Go out to a million fields of cows and you'll never discover a group of cows in the corner of the field trying to worship a a higher being. You'll never find it. But everywhere you go,
1: you'll find men doing it. There's still a religious
0: impulse. And even where that religious impulse brings us into outward conformity to the things commanded in the law. So we see an upright person and he, he has a high view of marriage and he gets married and he's, he's faithful to his wife and so forth. He can get so far in outward conformity to the law, but all that it is, is a form of godliness, which is totally ignorant of the power of godliness. He has not begun to understand the spirituality of the law. His obedience, whatever it is, is not rooted in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not motivated by true love to God, nor is he concerned ultimately for the chief end of his creation, that he would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our people find this hard to grasp because These are good people, civilly, we might say. And yet the conclusion of the Bible is that all of their outward works, all of their external conformity to the law of God is an abomination to God. It's sinful. That's true of any of you here this evening. You read your Bible because your parents tell you to read the Bible or maybe you've got a conscience to read your Bible and you come to church. You don't use bad language. And as we, we said a few weeks ago, you might even have a Christian worldview and you can have all these external things and still be an absolute and utter abomination to God. Because your outward obedience is not the perfect obedience. With the right that the righteous God requires in his holy law. The unregenerate man, he's dead, he doesn't have a true sense of the holiness of God. The unregenerate man, because he is dead, has no strength to keep the commandments of God. There's Adam in the beginning. He's created in righteousness and he's given the power to perform the righteousness which is in the law. But all that we have born into this world is the power of a dead man.
1: The power of a dead man.
0: So when it comes to obedience, you could as easily go out into the midst of the Atlantic Ocean And find the deepest sea trench known to men
1: and swim unassisted to the bottom of the ocean, you could do that more easily than render unto God the obedience that the law requires. Well, what do you think? Could you do it? No tank. No fins.
0: Nothing to save you from the pressure of the ocean. Just out in a boat. There you go. Jump in. Down you go. Touch the bottom. Come back up.
1: Are you doing it? You say no chance. I
0: say more chance. More chance of you doing that than being able to render the obedience to God, which the law requires as an unregenerate sinner. You quite simply cannot do what you must do. You cannot do what you must do because sin has left you disabled, utterly indisposed to perform any spiritual good unto God. And so you go back to what I spoke of at the beginning, false religions or even false forms of Christianity And this decimates every single one of them because it tells us that anyone who thinks that they can by their own merits please God are blind men on a fool's errand.
1: It is absolutely impossible. Now at this point,
0: an objection is raised. You just said, that men cannot do what they must do. Correct, that is exactly what I said. I say some, well then, how could God be righteous? How could God ever be righteous if he would command his creatures to do that which is impossible? Well, God would be unrighteous. If he commanded you to do something which was simply or absolutely impossible. So for example, children, if God in his word told you in a text that you were to try and jump off the top of a cliff, spread wings and fly, he would be unrighteous because that is simply and absolutely impossible because he did not create you to fly. But when it comes to God's moral right to command us to do that, which is impossible, we have to reckon on the fact that he created us in the beginning with the ability to do it. And so it's only relatively impossible. It wasn't impossible for Adam at the beginning to obey God. And Adam chose not to obey God. He destroyed the race and God is not guilty. For our rebellion against him, nor is he bound by our inability to somehow now not require that which, his, which is his lawful and righteous due
1: from his creatures.
0: No, God is not unrighteous. God justly requires from us that which he created us to do. And the guilt for our inability and the guilt for uh, our corruption and sin is squarely upon our own shoulders. Unregenerate man must do what he cannot, but has no strength to keep the commandments of God because of sin. But then it gets worse not only does he not have the strength to keep the commandments of God because he's dead in sin. Unregenerate man is dead
1: to God and alive to sin. He's
0: alive to sin. So that he, by his inclination, is only inclined to do contrary to the commandments of God. Our confession of faith tells us that man is disabled and made opposite to all good, but it doesn't stop there. It tells us that he is wholly inclined unto evil. Wholly inclined unto evil. With the result that we do continually and daily sin against
1: God. We sin
0: when we don't do what God commands. Sins of omission. We sin when we transgress against the commandment of God by our sins of commission. We do it in our thoughts. We do it in our actions. We do it in our motives. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked And we have crazy people, even in the church, going around saying, well, just listen to your heart. That's the last thing in the world that you should do. Here's the greatest deceiver in all the
1: earth. I think you should listen to him. It's not good advice. As in the days of
0: Noah, if we are left to ourselves, absolutely, and God does not restrain our sin, then the imaginations of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually.
1: God is not in our thoughts at all. And our mouths are like an open sepulcher. And from those mouths, all kinds of corrupting filth proceed.
0: Well, I think we get the picture, don't we? Can an unregenerate man perfectly keep the law of God? The answer is no, not at all. And this is a truth that God reveals to us in his words so that we see our sin and learn who we are and we give up all hopes of ever imagining that we can give to God the righteousness that he requires of us. This is a graciously crushing truth
1: because it drives us out of ourselves
0: and it compels us to go to God with empty hands and to say, I have nothing before you but my sin and to cry out in our sins for mercy, confessing that I sin against God daily, continually, perpetually in thought and word and deed. And to take from him Christ as he is held forth to us in the gospel as the only remedy that we might be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God.
1: Have you seen yourself this evening?
0: High view of yourself, better than other people. Just like the Pharisee, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like these other people, like this other man, like this publican. I thank you that I'm not like all these crazy trans people. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these child molesters. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like children from another home who are given to all kinds of sin and chaos. I thank you. I'm so much better than them. Has God destroyed that view of yourself this evening? that before him in your sin, you cannot please him. Well, why does he show you such a horrible picture of yourself that you might look up and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as the one he has given to be the righteousness of
1: those who have no righteousness? It's a graciously crushing truth because it leaves you with nothing and then it offers you everything. Would you turn then from your sin this evening and take Christ
0: by faith that he might be your righteousness before God? Do you want to ascend that holy hill that I described earlier where the gates of heaven open to receive you? The only way you can ascend that holy hill is in the one who went before And who is received by the Father on
1: the behalf of sinners. So the non-Christian, the unregenerate
0: man, cannot keep the law of God at all. His outward obedience is not the obedience that the law requires.
1: What of the Christian? Well,
0: the Christian or the regenerate man cannot keep the law of God perfectly. I don't say that he cannot keep the law of God at all. He cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And there you see again the precision of the catechism. No mere man can keep the law perfectly, but it does not say that no mere man can keep the law of God at all. You see, the Christian has come to realize what we've just described. By the grace of God, he repents of his sin and believes in the Lord Jesus. He has been born again by the Spirit. He's been regenerated from the deadness of his sins so that he is now alive unto God in Christ. In this new life, then, can we keep the
1: law of God perfectly? The answer is no.
0: But the good news is that for the Christian, he will be able to keep the commands of God perfectly in heaven. When your souls are perfected in holiness, when your bodies at the last day are reunited with the soul so that body and soul, you can glorify God forever without sin. No man in this life is able to keep the law of God. But brethren, there is a better day. There is a future life coming when you will not know sin anymore, but only holiness. What are the two great attractions to heaven? Oh, we got promises of reward and all of these things. What are the two great attractions to in, to heaven? The first has to be Christ, doesn't it? the glory of God in the face of Christ, but but the second has to be that we will be free from sin. You're not weary of sin every day of your life.
1: And sin will be history.
0: The memory of sin in heaven will only be to aid your appreciation of grace and glory and Christ forevermore. Look at me.
1: What was I? And what am I now? But in this world, we cannot keep the God
0: commands of God perfectly. Though you have been renewed in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, you have not been perfected in those things. The work has begun, and we're assured that he who hath begun a good work In us, will perform it unto the day of Christ Jesus, but the work has not been completed yet. Therefore, all of your best works as a Christian remain imperfect works, mixed with and tainted by sin
1: and polluted before God. Nevertheless as a
0: Christian you have a new power to obey God from the heart. The unconverted man has no power. But then as a Christian there's a war goes on within the soul. Because this new power is contended against by another power, the power of indwelling sin. And you know this to be true that you have real desires to seek Christ, you have true desires to be holy, And yet you will to be that. You desire to be that. And yet you feel in the power to perform it,
1: don't you? It's what Paul describes in
0: Romans chapter 7. The good that I would. I have a will to do it. But yet I don't do it. And the evil that I would not. I have a will against it.
1: And yet I fall into it.
0: What's he describing? Civil war in the soul of one person, because he's new in Christ, but he's not perfected. Then all of your works are mixed with imperfection, though we do aim at perfection. We must not forget that. We
1: aim at perfection.
0: We aim at perfection and obedience to the clear command of Christ, that we are to be perfect even as our Father in in heaven is perfect. But even though we aim, we cannot
1: perfectly attain. But as
0: I said, that is true of every Christian until he leaves this world. And you know it, don't you? You've struggled with it this evening from we've come into this room. How many times did we pray? And how often in prayer did your mind go everywhere and anywhere apart from being fixed upon the Lord?
1: You know it even
0: when you're believing on Christ, trusting in his word. That your soul is genuinely and sincerely saying, Lord, I believe. And yet, hot on the heels of that, we're like the man in the Gospels. Help thou mine unbelief. He's not an unbeliever.
1: He's a believer.
0: But he's a believer in an imperfect state. So that no Christian is he able to perfectly keep the commandments of God in this world. You strive to obey, you find mixed motives. You seek to be sincere and you'll discover some hypocrisy because all of our best works still have sin in them. Well, this is, as an aside, contrary to all shades of perfectionism, isn't it? this Wesleyan-Arminian idea that if we surrender fully to God, then we can know total victory over all voluntary sin in this world. You could only think like this if you have a deficient understanding of the spirituality of the law of God. Coupled with a deficient understanding of your own heart, And the corruption that still does cling to our own wills. You think it would be obvious just by experience. But of course, experience isn't always perfect. We go to scripture and we find that scripture backs up our experience. Because it tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It makes provision for the Christian life that we go again and again to Christ, confessing our sins with the promise that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where would confession of sin be in the Christian life if the doctrine of perfectionism were true? Furthermore, the scripture is very honest about the choicest saints in the Bible. They're all still tainted by sin. Noah in the Old Testament, together with Abraham and David. And then people will say, oh, but that was the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, what about Peter?
1: Get thee behind me, Satan.
0: What about Paul, who gives us Romans chapter 7? who tells us in 1 Corinthians that he has to watch daily and beat himself into subjection, lest having preached unto others, he would find himself a
1: castaway. The same apostle who says, I have not yet attained.
0: I have so much progress to make. And so I'm determined to strain every sinew of my soul To press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's warfare. And the largest part of the war goes on within us. You have enemies outside and
1: you'll encounter them. You have your greatest enemy inside. The war within your own heart.
0: Yet we can also say this, while our works are imperfect as Christians, they are still accepted by God. This is beautiful. That your works are, are imperfect as Christians, but they are still accepted by God. Not as merit to earn your salvations, but as sincere works of one who is saved in Christ, and who does them in faith,
1: these are well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God. So
0: here's the Christian life. Christ's merit and his perfect work is accepted by God for us. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has dealt with the terms and the curse of the covenant of works.
1: But then our
0: works are accepted in Christ. Our works are accepted in Christ so that by grace God accepts the sincere works of believers done in faith through Christ unto his glory.
1: even these sincere works,
0: this imperfect obedience that we are unable to give to God ourselves. No man of himself can obey the law. No Christian of himself can even render this imperfect, partial obedience to the law of God. Jesus says, without me, you can do
1: nothing. I don't
0: think we consider that enough in the Christian life. We're a little bit like the Galatians. They're doing it with the gospel in a particular way. But you've begun by grace, and now you've turned to the flesh. You've turned to works. We can do that in the Christian life. We can come recognizing that justification is all by grace and it's all through faith. And as as, as I said a few weeks ago, we've got, got this deistic idea of the Christian life where, you know, at the start, God winds you up and then he just takes his hands off and says, OK, well, you, you get on with it. But listen to Paul. That it is the Lord who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Where does the will to please God come from? It comes from God. Where does the ability to do that good pleasure come from? It comes from the
1: working of God within us.
0: Well, you better work. The command comes to you. The command isn't to the Holy Spirit, right? You go and work in that Christian, though we know behind it theologically, it's the spirit who's giving us the will. It's the spirit that's enabling us to do. The command comes to you. You better do it. And the works are properly yours. But yet they are first the work of God by his grace in us. And yet, as we said earlier, our gracious God is still pleased to reward those works that we do. Not for any merit, we said, not because uh, we put God in our debt. God rewards them because he is, in a sense, in debt to himself, because he has graciously promised to reward them. Not because we've merited them, but because God will keep his promise and reward the gracious, or reward the sincere works that he, by his grace, has enabled us to do. Well, some conclusions. First of all, you are indebted to the grace of God for the entirety of your salvation. We know that theologically. We want to learn that practically and experientially within our souls from this sermon this evening. Not one of us can perfectly keep
1: the commandments of God. It is
0: not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. God is the one who saves. And you and I are indebted to the grace of God for the whole of our salvation from beginning to end. Second, we are humbled by this truth and taught to examine our lives. I'm speaking to those of us born again of the Holy Spirit. This is true of you. You daily sin in thought, word, and deed. You can't perfectly keep the commandments of God. So instead of running down some false notion of perfectionism where I've attained by surrender to complete victory over my voluntary sins, we go to the scripture and we learn that that's not not what's going on in the Christian's life. I'm daily sinning in thought, in word, and deed. Therefore, I must daily appraise my life. I need to sit down before God knowing this to be true and say, what are my sins of of, of thinking? What are my sins of speaking? What are my sins of of action today? And therefore the spirit of self-examination and the spirit of repentance, brethren, it is with the Christian every day of his Christian life until the day when our souls we will be perfected in holiness before God, and then repentance is no more needed because sin is gone. We're humbled by this and taught to examine our lives. But finally, we're compelled by this to live in dependence upon Jesus Christ for all things, to provide us righteousness before God, and to give us the power in sanctification to perform obedience to the law with sincerity, in faith, and in love. We have to go to him daily for that. Don't try to live the Christian life in your own strength. Otherwise, it will be an absolute failure. But when you find that strength of the Lord and you see the evidence and fruit of obedience in your life, then you return it to him and you acknowledge all and any success to the one who gave you the power to perform it. I leave you with Romans 11 or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again for of him and through him and to him are all things. That includes your obedience. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we acknowledge to be true our utter inability to keep the law of God. This is made worse when we consider our original creation in righteousness and our rebellion in Adam. That you made us upright, we destroyed ourselves and we seek out many inventions. And there is not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We praise you into a world of wickedness like this that you could have condemned justly forever. You sent another man one Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh, who fulfilled all righteousness, and as the Lord our righteousness entered into heaven, having paid the debt of our sin, who buried the guilt, and who presents
1: himself a spotless lamb, a righteous Savior, the Ark of the Covenant,
0: where the law is placed and covered for all those who will believe. And we thank you this same Lord Jesus does not leave us to struggle in this world without assisting us to walk in the way of his commandments. We pray, O oh God, that you would pardon our sins and empower us to obey the law, that you would give us a love for holiness, that you would incline us in our mind and will and affections after him, that you would look upon our struggling but sincere obedience and grant that it might be well-pleasing unto thee, even our bodies, as we present them as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God as a reasonable service. Lord, you have stripped us bare this evening. You've shown us that we have nothing. And yet by grace, the gospel has been set before us demonstrating how you have restored that which was destroyed. O God, grant that we might ever know the work of the Spirit prompting us, causing us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Receive us, O God, we cast ourselves upon thee. And we pray
1: in Jesus' name. Amen.